Good morning. I'm kind of shocked to see all you ladies here this morning. This is about opposition. We have done it over and over. You are some tough ladies. Tough. I mean, I struggled because I didn't want to title it what it should have been titled. More opposition. Because I was afraid you wouldn't come back. You are my heroes. You know, but I can't think of a better place to be this morning than right here studying the Word of God. And that's what a great way to honor Christ and His amazing sacrifice for us than to study His Word so we can fall deeper in love with Him and obey Him in our lives. You know, as we spend this week um, reflecting on Christ's life leading up to when He was crucified and when He rose, rose again from the dead, you know, we are reminded that that Christ is no stranger, or was no stranger to opposition. I mean, for goodness sakes, before he was even born, this guy was in his mother's stomach on a donkey going to Bethlehem. That couldn't have been easy. And he was born in a, in a stable, and he, he probably slept in something like a cow trough. And before he was even a few years old, King Herod, that nasty old guy, tried to have him killed. And, and then his adult ministry was just one form of opposition after another, after another, until the day they put him on the cross. So, you know, he was no stranger to this, not a bit. You know, and I think as we study Nehemiah, I think everybody out there can safely say you see that strong theme of opposition running through this. In fact, I would suggest you see a strong thing of opposition running through the Bible, all the way from the first part of Genesis to the very end of Revelation, you see opposition and struggles and victories. And opposition and struggles and victories all the way through the Bible. You know, a few years ago, my kids um, were reading the uh, diary of Anne Frank for school. And uh, towards the end of their reading period of that, on the TV, they were showing the movie, The Diary of Anne Frank. And it hardly ever works out like this in my home. It was perfect. I thought, what a way to bring this book to life. We're going to watch this. So we did. Well, let me just say, they watched I can't watch the Holocaust. It, it physically makes me want to be sick. I did this through the whole thing, la, 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 trying not to hear what they had to say. But towards the end, before the credits were running, they were flashing up all these different things about the di- about the Holocaust, you know, how many had died in the Holocaust, the oldest survivor, all these things. But then a, something came up that we paused the TV and we read it like three or four times just to make sure that we had actually read this right. But it said this. It said the book, The Diary of Anne Frank, is second only to the Bible in number of printed copies. Wow. That's a lot. Because there are a lot of Bibles. Do you realize that both of those books deal with the plight of God's chosen people? That blew us away. We read it again. And, and they're both books about opposition and struggle and victory and persevering. Both of these books. And they're at the top of the list in printed copies. You know, Nehemiah, as I mentioned, is this book of opposition. Over and over and over. And so was Ezra. You know, we learned way back in the first chapter of Nehemiah that this wall had been crumbled and burned and the gates burned because of opposition to the, to the Jews. And then in chapter 2, we see these guys come on the scene. You knew I'm talking about. I affectionately like to call them Larry, Curly, and Moe. 
because I think these guys get way too much press time. You know what I'm talking about? Sambalot, Tobiah, and Geshem, the three stooges in my, as far as I'm concerned, and they always show up. They're like those playground bullies. You know what I'm talking about? When you're out on, when you're a little kid, you're on the playground, here they come. It's a little pack. You can be over doing the jump rope, they steal the jump rope. You can play in kickball, they steal the ball. You have ponytails, they pull your hair. They're always stirring up trouble everywhere they go. Now, in chapter 3 of Nehemiah, I think they're not mentioned just because Nehemiah is so precise about naming each gate and who's going to repair each gate. He's a very precise man. But then we see him again in chapter 4, kind of as collectively they're going after a whole group, mocking or ridiculing the rebuilding. Do you remember they said that even a fox, if it walked on that, that thing would crumble? You don't know how to rebuild a wall. Constantly trying to tear them down. And then in, in chapter 5, I'm not sure if they had some paid time off or on vacation or sick or taking a siesta. We didn't hear from them, but boom, do they show up in the very first verse of chapter 6. And, and in fact, when you read the title to chapter 6, it says, Further Opposition to the Rebuilding. Woo! That was exciting to read, wasn't it? There's going to be more to come. And guess who it is? It's Larry, Curly, and Moe right in the first chapter. Now, unlike the opposition we read about earlier, they were always, and earlier they were always opposition as a group. Like they were the whole group of Jews. They would go after them as a group. But this time, you see these three stooges honing in on one person. Yeah, they couldn't take them down as a group, so they're going to go for the leader. And they're going to go after Nehemiah. They're going to try to deceive him, intimidate him, and they're going to try to discredit his name. And maybe even kill him to take him out of, their, out of the picture. Now, I want you to open your Bibles to chapter 6, and we're going to start off with the first 14 verses today. But before we go into that, I want to mention that I think Nehemiah is awesome. You know, is he a man's man? Oh, my goodness. I have started praying that my boys would become Nehemiahs, and I'm praying that my daughters will marry Nehemiahs. Because, you know, they're not, he's just not a man's man. He's a godly man's man. That's the best. And I've heard some of you ladies say that you think he's good looking. I heard you talking. And you know what? I agree. I think he's tall, dark, and handsome. And I was secretly a little disappointed when I was watching the miniseries on the History Channel. Skipped right over it. I just knew I was going to get to see what he looked like. But in my mind, my shallow mind, this guy is tall, dark, and handsome. So now let's start by reading now that we know what he looks like, um, at the first chapter, uh, first verse of chapter 6. said, When the word came to Sambalot, Tobiah, and Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies, that I had rebuilt the wall, and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors in the gates, Sambalot and Geshem sent me this message, Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me. So I sent messengers to them with this reply, I'm carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message, and each time I gave them the same answer. Then the fifth time, Sambalot sent his aid to me with the same message, and in his hand was an unsealed letter, and in it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says it's true. Doesn't it sound like a middle school girl? <laughs> Well, she said it's true. And that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you were building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you're about to become their king and have, been appointed prof and have appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. 
Now this report will get back to the king, so come, quick, panic. Come, let us confer together. So I sent him this reply. Nothing like what you say is happening. You are just making it up out of your head. They are all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and will not, it will not be completed. But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. One day I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of this guy and sister to the, you know, those guys. He said, let us meet in the house of God, inside the temple, and let us close the temple doors because men are coming to kill you. And he says it again with urgency. They're coming to kill you by night. But I said, should a man like me run? Or should one like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. I realized that God had not sent him, but he had, been prophesied against, he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sambalot had hired him. He had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this, and then they would, would give me a bad name to discredit me. Remember Tobiah and Sambalot, oh my God, because of what they have done. Remember also the prophetess Nodiah and the rest of the prophets who have been trying to intimidate me. You know, I once heard a saying that said, you can tell a lot by a person by the way they handle three things. First, a rainy day. Second, lost luggage. And number three, tangled Christmas lights. <laughs> now, number one, rainy days, I kind of like them. Number two, that's just opportunity. If you have lost luggage, that means you get to shop for something new while you're there. But number three can take me from singing Christmas carols at the top of my lungs in 30 seconds flat to in a rage, like just pulling things apart and throwing things and deciding we don't need lights. <laughs> but in the case of Nehemiah, I think it would sound something like this. It would sound something more like, you can tell a lot by a person by the way they handle these three things. Number one, deception. Number two, intimidation. And number three, compromise. Because, you know, we saw all these things in the first 14 verses of chapter 6. And I think we've seen that Nehemiah is a man that knows how to handle opposition. In fact, Shelley told us a couple weeks ago that when he was faced in opposition in chapter 4, what did he do? He kept focused on God, and he kept focused on the mission that God had given him, and he didn't let anything else distract him. So that was one way he did it. And you see, Nehemiah demonstrated a life that was dedicated to serving and honoring God. And his completion of the wall in record time, it revealed God's perfect formula, God's perfect equation for success. And you know, Nehemiah had this completely figured out. I like to call it the Nehemiah's equation for success. Now, anybody that knows me at all knows me that math is not my strong point. In fact, from kindergarten to I graduated from college, I struggled with math. And my kids, past second grade, had to get a tutor. I, I can't help but I decided to make this into an equation. And I hope all you math nerds, and you know who you are, that you won't be judging and be caught up in how I choose to write this and how I choose to solve it, because it's not going to follow any math rule out there at all. <laughs> not one. See, the, the equation, it's written on your outline. It says D to the third power plus V to the third power all over P equals MA. I look smart, don't I? <laughs> I felt smart when I wrote that. I was like, wow, my teachers would be so proud of me, I think. But the first part of this math equation, the D to the third power, it's solved right here in the first 14 verses of chapter 6. And that is that Nehemiah used discernment in dealing with his, his opposers, with the three stooges. 
He knew how to handle them. And D to the third power equals discernment. And it's to the third power because we saw him using it three different times in three different ways when we read through this. You see, in verses 1 through 4, we saw Nehemiah using discernment with deception. Remember, they were trying to lure him out of the city and, and, you know, come out here. We're going to have a little peace talk. It's like having a peace talk with snakes. It wasn't going to happen. You know, I'm sure they were going to try to harm him or even maybe kill him. Who knows what they were up to? But he saw through that, and he knew... He knew that that was their scheme, and he, he addressed it right away. I thought it was interesting, though, how he said, why should I stop work while I, and leave it and go down to you? Now, I know, of course, it's because he was up here in Jerusalem, and they were down here in the plain of Ono, but I just think this really cool Nehemiah guy, he was actually maybe, there was a double little meaning to this, like, I'm here serving God. It's like on a mountain. It feels so awesome while you're doing it. If I were to come down to you, I would be stooping down to your slimy schemes and your slimy level, and I don't want to come down there and do that because I want to stay up here and serve and honor God. And that's just my own opinion, but I think he might have had a double meaning to that. I don't know. But I also love the way he patiently, patiently decided to let them prove their true motives. Now, me, I would have just, I know what you're doing. You know, I'd have been trying to be tough, but no. He just kept letting them have a little more rope. A little more rope each time. And he sent this message back, and he said, you know, he, he, he sent it back and said, well, I'm busy, I can't come. But if they were to come back the second time and said, hey, you know, you're busy in the city. Why don't we just travel up there and meet with you so we don't have to stop it? We can have a meeting there. Then they, they might have had pure motives. But no, they came back with the same message over and over and over. And by doing that, they tipped their hand. He knew exactly what they were up to. And so then it comes down to the fifth request. And this is where they tipped it, right here. It's the second scheme and the second way that we see Nehemiah using discernment. And it's discernment with intimidation. See, in verses 5 through 9, his, his enemies send this messenger back with the unsealed letter. Someone in leaders meeting said it's like sending a postcard. You've got to be careful what you put on those because everybody sees it. And so before, we can assume that these messages were coming back and forth kind of confidentially. But this one had something different, unsealed. And it was going to go from point A to point B, which was from Sambalot all the way to the king. And it was wide open, and anybody could read this. Panic. Oh, my gosh. What if somebody thinks I'm trying to do this? And then I lose my leadership and my ability to lead and, and all this fear. But you know what? It didn't work. They were hoping that that's exactly what would happen, but, but he wasn't intimidated to leave the city at all. Not at all. In fact, I think his enemies thought he would jump at the chance to save his great name, but he didn't. He dismissed, he dismissed it just like it was, a pack of lies. A pack of lies, and he addressed it like that. You see, I think they failed to understand just the deep devotion that Nehemiah had to his God. And I think they failed to understand at his, that the level of commitment that he had to carrying out this mission. They could not even understand it. In verses 10 through 14, Nehemiah shows discernment with compromise. You know, I think one of the best definitions for discernment I've ever read was, discernment is not knowing only right from wrong, but discernment is also knowing right from almost right. Boy, that's where you can get tripped up quick. In verses 10 through 14, we see Nehemiah being encouraged to break a law out of fear for his life. And it kind of seemed like maybe that's okay, maybe that's the right time you would do it. 
break that law just that one time. His enemies hired this man, Shemaiah, and, and it, commentary said that he probably knew him somehow, probably trusted him to a certain degree. So they hired him to, to start this scheme and, and say, they're coming to kill you and give a sense of urgency to, to Nehemiah. That maybe he should hide in the temple. Now, of course, it was just this attempt to discredit Nehemiah, and we studied that. I had you look back in Numbers 3.10 and Numbers 8.17. They're on your verse sheet. It says, Appoint Aaron and his sons to serve as priests. Anyone else who approaches a sanctuary must be put to death. And then in Numbers, in verse 7 of 18, it says, But only you and your sons may serve as priests in connection with anything at the altar or inside the curtain. I'm giving you the service of the priesthood as a gift. Anyone else who comes near the sanctuary must be put to death. See, any, only priests were allowed in there. So all, if anybody else went in there, they would be put to death. So not only would he have been discredited, they probably could have carried out their ultimate goal to completely get rid of him. But they weren't able to do it. And he knew this truth. And it's because Nehemiah knew the truth. He knew truth, and he wasn't willing to compromise that truth, even in the face of death, even out of fear and desperation. He was willing to not go right to almost right. He knew the distinction. He knew it. And I personally, I know a lot of people, both believers and non-believers. And they're good, good people. I mean, they're really good people. But, and they know right from wrong. In fact, you know, my kids, by the time they were two, they knew some right from wrong. But, you know, only the Word of God, only what is in here can teach you to take it to that next level of the discernment where it's, you can judge not only wrong, right from wrong, but right from almost right. You know, without that spiritual discernment, that line between right and almost right, it kind of gets gray. And before you know it, that right and almost right, it separates and it's, it's wrong. Subtle evil is so much harder to detect and discern than blatant evil. And we have to be prepared for it. We have to be in the Word of God daily so that we're ready for it all the time because it's going to catch us if we don't. You know, Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, he was a prophet that prophesied actually to the people that, that Nehemiah was leading. He says in chapter 3, verse 18, he says about discernment. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. And in the New Testament... Discernment's also addressed. It's in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 14. It says, but solid food, talking about the word of God, it's for mature. It's going to mature us. And by constant use, and when they say use, they mean reading it and then applying it to your life and obeying it, they've trained themselves to distinguish between good and evil. And I think it could say between good and almost good because you need that level of discernment. And the first part of Nehemiah's equation, it, 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 was, it was because of discernment. That's what the D stands for. The decisions he made, he faced this opposition with discernment. Not out of fear and desperation. You know, this discernment gave him great success with this mission. If you look at down at um, verse 15 and 16 of chapter 6, let's see just how successful this really was. So the walls were completed on the 25th day of Elah in, the 52, in 52 days. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. See, this wall was completed in 52 days on the 25th day of Elah. Now that's somewhere around, say, the... I saw like the 20th of September, around the 4th of October. Sometime in that period is when they finished this. 
But what I didn't realize until I studied a little deeper is that, do you realize from the first time that Nehemiah heard about these walls? That was kind of the, the previous year, say November, December. To the time he went to King Artaxerxes, which was in the spring, the following spring, that would have been, say, March or April. And then the travel time from there to Jerusalem is roughly two or three months. So we're looking at travel between April and June or May and July. And in the 52 days it took them to finish, to clear away the rubble, build up this wall, it was less than a year. That blew me away. I mean, when I first read that, I'm like, 52 days. Woo, that's big. That is huge. Now, let me put this into perspective for you. Do you know that I read that the wall around Jerusalem at the time of Nehemiah was four and a half miles long and 66 feet thick, wide? And they cleared the rubble and they rebuilt it in 52 days with the three stooges constantly needling at them. That's amazing. Let me put it even more perspective. Has any of you, any of you ever driven south on Hewlin? <laughs> Have you driven over the Hewlin Street Bridge, or like I like to call it, the bridge to heaven? Because I am positive that's the one Jesus is coming back on, and we're going back on that bridge, because that's about the time it's going to be finished. I drove over it the other day just so I could be sure about this. It's right around a half a mile from one end to the other. So let's be kind. It's a mile back and forth, round trip. They've had gas-powered equipment, thousands of man hours, and they started two years ago, and they're still not finished. This is huge. In fact, I am so surprised that when I read that, it was just kind of hidden in there, finished in 52 days, period. Oh, my goodness. That should have been underlined, italicized, bolded. It should have had exclamation points, and it should have... They finished in 52 days because that was gigantic. It was so big that all other enemies became fearful and afraid, and they lost their self-confidence because they knew that their God was powerful. And they knew fighting against this God was not going to be an easy battle. In fact, it might end up being a losing battle is what they were thinking. You know, Nehemiah's discernment helped bring glory and honor to God's great name. What about you? What about you? Are your decisions made with discernment? Or are they being made out of fear and desperation? And we all face opposition. Something comes in our lives all the time. Is how you're handling this opposition in your life, is it causing others around you to see God and his, ma his amazing power? Or is how you're handling that opposition, is it causing those around you to stumble? Maybe causing them to go, wow, her God maybe isn't quite as strong as she says he is. Because people are constantly watching us. You know, I want to finish up and read the last few verses of this chapter in chapter 6 before we move on to chapter 7. So follow along, starting at 17. Also in those days, the nobles of Judah were sending many letters to Tobiah, and replies from Tobiah kept coming to them. For many in Judah were under oath to him, since he was, you know, the brother of and the son of and of. Moreover, they kept reporting to me good deeds and then telling him what I said. And Tobiah sent letters to intimidate me. You know, even with this great success, 52 days, here it comes. There was still this undertow of opposition. I mean, does that sound familiar at all? Has anybody here ever been doing something that you know was in God's will and 
oh, you're just, it feels so good to be obeying, and you're just doing this, and you're watching prayer after prayer be answered, and oh, it's just awesome. You're seeing his fingerprints all over everything, and you need to kind of go, ah, oh, it's just kind of a mission accomplished. Boom, there it is. Someone or something opposes you again. Again, you see, this didn't phase Nehemiah. I think he kind of expected it at this point. I mean, I mean, look at all he's been up against. You know, I think he understood what Jesus talked about in the New Testament in, six, in John 16:33, when he says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. You see, Nehemiah wasn't surprised by this. Instead, he was prepared for it, and he was ready to fight it. Why do I spend so much time going, oh, I'm surprised every time I get opposition again. Like, I'm obeying God's word. Why? Maybe, and then I start to doubt. Oh, maybe I'm not doing what I should be doing. Oh, maybe, I'm, maybe I heard God wrong. This should have been easy. I'm in God's will. See, we, we misread those signals. That's not it at all. He's just wanting us to lean into him even deeper at that time. Because he's there. He's taking us through it. You know, it's kind of like if, if you have to go into the backyard and it's in mosquito season, let's say you're going to trim your bushes or something. If you are discerning and you put bug spray all over yourself, you're going to go out there into that backyard and there's still going to be mosquitoes zooming around. You can hear them, but they're not going to bite you and they're not going to stop you from doing what you've got to do because you've covered yourself and you've been prepared when you go out to do it. And Nehemiah had finished those walls. He'd placed those gates and doors into place. And, you know, being the wise man he was, he didn't do what I would have done. I would have gotten the lazy boy, and I'd have kicked back for a while. <sighs> Mission accomplished. Time to rest. He knew it was not that time. He knew that it, he had to get this community organized because he wanted these citizens that were going to live there to enjoy the life that God had wanted for them way back when, he, when Abraham had been promised this land. And you know something? He knew that God knew that his son was going to walk on these streets. God's precious son, were going to, he was going to walk on these streets, he was going to preach in that temple, and then he was eventually going to die outside these city walls. God wanted Jerusalem ready too, and Nehemiah was just helping him get it done. It was that important to him. You know, the next part of Nehemiah's equation for success is how he carried out the next part of his mission, and that's V to the third power, and that equals vigilance. You know, a good definition for vigilance is to be alert and watching carefully for potential danger. And then I read in um, the First Kings version of First uh, Peter 5, 8, it says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he can devour. I want you to look at the first couple of verses that I read in chapter 7. After the wall had been rebuilt and I had set the doors in place, the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites were appointed. I put in charge of Jerusalem my brother Hananiah, along with Hananiah, the commander of the citadel, because he was a man of integrity and feared God more than most men do. See, the first thing Nehemiah did was he showed vigilance with the things of God. He did that first and foremost. He was kind of a man, man ahead of his time because, you know, Christ addressed that same thing in Matthew 6, uh, Matthew 6:33, when he's teaching the disciples and preparing them for what is about to come, he said, "Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things, and all these things, all your needs, your protection, the security, everything else, it will be given to you as well." 
Not only did he put in place the Levites and the singers and those that would help the worship and help teach the Jews, that he also put in leadership, godly leadership. And he set them in place and he knew their, he knew their character. He knew these men and he trusted they would do what God wanted them to do. And let's read the next, let's read verse uh, 3 of chapter 7 and let's see the next way he sets about being vigilant says in verse 3, I said to them, the gates of Jerusalem are not to be opened till the sun is hot while the gatekeepers are still on duty. Have them shut the doors and bar them. Also appoint residents of Jerusalem as guards, some at their post and some near their own houses. He was so wise. I mean, he devised this amazing plan. Who better than to be near their own homes where their families were? They were going to fight hard to take care of Jerusalem at that point. So it was a brilliant plan. And he said about with vigilance when protecting others in his life. And I think the first time he did that was when he set in, in place the things of God. That's another way of protecting others in our lives. He carefully devised this plan, and he was vigilantly, vigilantly securing this city. It was, but it was also time for him to fill that city. And I think he used just as much vigilance with that as he did with everything else. In verse 4... We read, now the city was large and spacious, but there were few people in it, and the houses had not been rebuilt. So my God put into his, my heart to assemble the nobles, the officials, and the common people for registrations by family. I found the genealogy records of those who had been the first to return, and this is what he found. Okay, for the sake of time and the fact that I would totally dishonor every person written in there. I am not going to read all of that, okay? I hope that when you did your questions, you did at least glance over that. Because, I mean, my goodness, they made it into the Bible. They deserve our glance. So that means they were being obedient. And that's why they were put here. That's why they were put in here. And this list is a list, after verse 5, of, of the people that God used to bridge them from this past of, of defeat and captivity all the way to their future of hope and their salvation that was going to come. And he was using this group of people listed after verse 5. And then it was also a list, not only of those that helped rebuild it and, and were going to settle in it, it also was a list of, of what they, they gave to help re, the rebuilding efforts. So it's a list of that as well. See, Nehemiah used great vigilance with restoring the people of Judah because he knew the promises that had been made to Abraham years ago. If, if you remember, we studied that. This promise was that the Abraham's lineage that would come out of that would be the Messiah. Jesus Christ was going to be coming through this, and, and he was going to save the world. So this had to be, the line had to be kept so pure. Look back in, on your verse sheet. In Genesis, it says in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, The Lord said to Abraham, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I show you. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And then we jump forward to Matthew, the first chapter in verse 1, and we see that what's to follow there in that genealogy is a genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, meaning not physically his son, but in the the genealogy of, of David and Abraham. And then we skip forward even further to verse 17 in Matthew, and it talks about there would be 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 more generations from David to the exile in Babylon, and then 14 more from the exile in Babylon to when Christ came. This was so important to him. 
So important to him. And you know, this list wasn't a list of just nobles and officials. What did it say? It said there's a list of common people. Common people, just like you and me. You know, even though we may not recognize their names and we read through it, and for the most part, I can't even pronounce half of them, you know, we're able to see a method. It's the method that God uses to bring about his will. It's a method that he uses ordinary people willing to live out their lives for his glory. They're willing to be obedient and follow his will to bring about his glory. And their laboring did not go unnoticed. I mean, my goodness, they're listed in the Bible. So it's not unnoticed at all. And God has entrusted the rebuilding of Jerusalem to Nehemiah. He entrusted the, the rebuilding of the citizens of Nehemiah. And he went about it with great vigilance. You know, what about you? God has entrusted a lot of things to us. Maybe a spiritual heritage. Maybe some children. Family. Extended family. Friends. He's entrusted these things, these people to us. What about you? Are you, like Nehemiah, going about with vigilance, caring for the things that God has entrusted to you? I mean, are you first setting the things of God in place in every part of your life? And secondly, are you protecting others from the right and almost right? And maybe even your own heart. And are you as vigilant about helping restore the people in your lives back to Christ if they've fallen away or, or maybe never even met him? Or, or are you vigilant with building yourself, rebuilding yourself and restoring yourself? Because all this has been entrusted to us and we have to do this. You know, I want to I go on and I, you, know, you think about what Nehemiah was like. You know, having Nehemiah's strength, endurance, Nehemiah's strength, vigilance, it just seems daunting almost. You know, I expect him to, when I think about him, I think he probably has tights and a cape with some big N on his chest. He just seems like this amazing man. But you know what? I just said he's a man. He's human. He wasn't a superhero. He wasn't a god. He wasn't anything like that. He was just a man. He was just a man willing to let God use him for his purpose. And how did he do it? Because, you know, he faced frustration just like we do. He... He had to get hungry. Remember they were building with one hand and fighting with the other for 52 days. He had to get exhausted. He had to get thirsty, get tired. He had to get frustrated, discouraged. Everything we feel when we're, when we're in God's will or any time in our lives. See, I think he did it because he, he had a strong foundation of prayer. And the P in our equation equals prayer. I believe that he was able to accomplish great things for God because he made his decisions based on this foundation of prayer. Everything he did was covered in prayer. You know, I read a quote from an actress, and this will just show you how far our world has come, but she was in the early 1900s, and she said this. She said, courage is only fear that has said its prayers. That is so true to me. It really is. Everybody's fearful. But if we've said our prayers, we can go forth with that confidence that God can give us and know that he's going to be there. It seems to me that Nehemiah was able to lead with confidence and without fear because he was in constant communication with God. Constant. He not only prayed for guidance for himself, but he prayed for guidance for the people he was leading. He prayed for the will of God to take place in everyone's life, those near him and his enemies. He prayed a prayer of thanksgiving when he was given, when he was given any type of victories. You know, I found a chart... In one of the commentaries I read, and I thought it just put it 
perfectly clear, and it would list, like, the problem he had and how he responded. And it blew me away when I read. I, I'm normally going to do a, a few to take us up to where we are now because it goes through the whole book of Nehemiah, or the yeah, book of Nehemiah. But it was like problem in chapter 1. The walls were broken and the gates were burned. How did he respond? Grief and prayer. And then there was number 4. Where there was ridicule of the workers. How did he respond? Prayer and action. And then again in 4, there was an a, attack. On, a, they threatened attack on the workers. How did he respond? prayer and action. And in here in chapter 6, there was slander against Nehemiah. How did he react? Denial and prayer. And then there, again, they tried to discredit him in chapter 6. How did he respond? Refusal to cooperate and prayer. Prayer. I mean, it, it's run throughout his entire life. His decisions are based on this strong foundation of prayer. And because of that, he was able to lead with confidence. And he brought great glory and honor to God's name. What about you? Are your decisions both large and small? Are they being made on a foundation of prayer? Or are you like me, about 50% of the time, flying by the seat of your pants, just trying to control the crash? Because the crash is about to come. It always is. It always is going to come. You know, we've looked at a few verses in our questions this week, last week about the importance of prayer. And I've put a couple on your verse sheet. They're in Matthew 26, 41. This is when Jesus is praying in Gethsemane. And he's left the disciples back to pray while he goes off by himself to pray. And when he comes back, they're sound asleep. They haven't prayed at all. And, you know, I, sometimes when I think about that, I go, oh, what are they thinking? I'm like, I do it every day. I do it every single day. It says, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the, fre- the flesh is weak. I mean, Nehemiah, he could have fallen into temptation at any moment to confer with these guys or to maybe compromise things just a little bit, just to save himself. And in Paul's letter to the Ephesians in chapter 6, verse 18, he says, And pray in the Spirit on all occasions and all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert, be vigilant, and always keep praying for all the saints. So we've identified D3, D to the third power. Here's our math stuff. It equals discernment and how we use it when we face opposition. And we've identified V to the third power as vigilance that we're supposed to use when caring for the things that God has entrusted to us. And P equals prayer. That should be the foundation of everything we do. But what does it all equal? Well, it equals MA. It's mission accomplished. MA equals mission accomplished. Look back at me at Nehemiah 6, 5, uh, verse 15 and 16. And this time I'm going to read it the way I think they should have put it in there. It says, so the walls were completed on the 25th day of Elah in 52 days. Oh, my goodness. When all our enemies heard about this, they were so afraid, and they lost all their self-confidence, all of it. And they did it because they realized that this work had been done by our great God. That is a huge victory. And then skip forward to the very end of chapter 7 at, and um, Verse 73, and it says, The priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, and the temple servants, along with a certain of the people and the rest of the Israelites, settled in to their town. <sighs> Phew. I mean, they settled in to their town. They just, they've been through so much. They had to feel so good. I looked up the word settled, and it said to come to rest. It said to become quiet and orderly. And also to become fixed, established, and resolved. You know, I think after everything they'd been through, 
This was maybe that time of peace and rest that they so needed. But I don't think it was a wasted rest. You know, I so many, so many times waste my rest because I think I just need to sleep or I need to get away into a movie and not think about things. But I think they used this time instead, this time of rest, to reflect how God had been with them and his faithfulness for them, with them. And, and I think it caused them to grow deeper and deeper in their faith during this time. You know, because of Nehemiah's decisions and because they were based on a foundation of prayer, he was not distracted by deceptive motives. He wasn't distracted by intimidation. But his discernment and his vigilance allowed him to lead God's chosen people, ordinary people, just like you and me. He led them to do great things for the kingdom of God. And that's what prayer does. Nehemiah proves it over and over, and he's going to continue to prove it over and over and over. Prayer gives ordinary people the ability to accomplish great things for the kingdom of God. Please pray with me. Precious Father, um, we just love you. We love your words. We love that you want to communicate with us, that you desire that, you cherish it. And Lord, I pray that you would um, teach us, that you would give us the desire to just be in constant communication with you, Father. Father, I pray that in doing that, you would um, give us discernment like Nehemiah and vigilance and everything that we care for and love. Father, we love you, and I pray that we're able to apply all of this to our lives. In Christ's name I pray this. Amen.